it's Min Fan from Fennekite and Forge and Puffs. Um, they're both restaurants, and I am also the creative director of Peakite Studios, where I do most of my practice. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you for having me. It's been a journey to get you on. I know you're very, very busy with the work that you do. And I just want to congratulate you for the win two years ago uh, in 2021. Best restaurant in LA by the LA Times. So a late congratulations for you. Oh, thank you so much. It's um, It's been such a journey and continues to be such a journey. I think... Um when you win that award, it's like you win for your previous work. But for me, it really was the beginning of my of my work. I still feel like I'm in um, the beginning phases of a lot of work right now. So it's very, it's, it's really, it's my favorite place to be. The potential of possibilities um, is always my favorite place to be. It's the most uncomfortable, um, but it's my absolute favorite. And I think it's just because of, you know, being an immigrant, you're always, um, you always have to look towards the possibility of the future um, because, you know, the past and the present is always so difficult. Yeah, it, it sounds like you're approaching it like kind of like a with the beginner's mind almost, you know, um, that's sort of like the past and, you know, whatever's coming up, every day it's a new thing and you're beginning out brand new every day almost always yeah i think that's the futurist in me and i think that's how you know it's it's a very comfortable place for me to be is the beginner's mindset because it's where i have thrived my pretty much my entire life um and it's also practice and i think people don't realize that when you sometimes you're good at something because of pure practical practice. And I've had to look at every situation and be really present and bring experience unlike anyone else. Because, you know, growing up when you have been an other your whole life, you, it's survival that you take a moment to see where you are and then to quickly assess how you fit into the situation and how you're going to be able to survive it or run away from it if you need to. <laughs> yeah, sounds like very practical words. Yeah, yeah, it's a very practical. Pra I, I think that's the things. I think I, I'm finally realizing I can think such big thoughts and have such um, fearlessness because I've always had practice in being a practical, being you know courageous on a very practical level. I have to be, you know. I think when you are othered for so many reasons I've been an other in my life. I think every moment of my life, I have to look at being courageous. And when you're so, you've been so practiced at it, it's second nature. I can, you know, really go in and not be afraid of a lot of things because I, you know, I think by nature, I'm an introvert, but I've had so much practice at being courageous, at being present and being there for others. Um, you know, and I think that's, you know, and I think that's definitely a Vietnamese part of me, too. Um, I think, you know, in, in Vietnamese, there's a lot of proverbs, which I love. Um, and I think, you know, there's certain ones like, um, you know, like there's certain ones that you have to see your surroundings. Um, and then I even think, you know, in Vietnam, in Vietnamese proverbs, there's a lot of proverbs about um 
you know, seeing who's sitting at the table, um, you know, and how your elders and there's such like this sense of, you know, like patriarchy, but I've kind of turned it for me because I don't, I, I've been fighting patriarchy and imperialism my whole life. I've had to really figure out how do I change within the system and not against the system because, you know, patriarchy exists in my parents, exists in my loved ones, exists in the Vietnamese community. And I'm not going to turn my back away from that. I'm going to work within that. I think I have spent years turning my back on it because I couldn't process it. But as I get more mature and more clarity and understanding my own identity as a Vietnamese American, I really start to have clarity on how do we start changing from within because it's more harmonious. I think I don't like the word disruption. Um, I think it's a very sophomoric term um, that's been used when something's going through a phase. You do need that disruptive phase, but as you become more into your comfortable with yourself, I think harmonizing and finding that fluidity is more important than, I think it's more radical to be harmonizing and fluid than it is to be disruptive and antagonistic and chaotic. You know, I came here to talk about food, but I'm getting philosophy from you and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And for the rest of the country that's listening uh, in the United States, um, New York, LA, to the biggest uh, culinary scenes, in the country and arguably in the world and to have the top spot um at one point it was just recently 2021 here in la is a big big deal and i can't even imagine what being othered in your life is because of my contrast and how i see you and mainstream la i mean it's a big deal to beat out so many Italian restaurants and French restaurants. I mean, just so many restaurants that are in LA. And to hear about your experience of being othered, uh, I want to get into that if, if we can. It's been, you know, I think for the last three decades of my life, I haven't competed with anyone. And it's, it's a curse and a blessing. Um, you know, I think the last time I ever competed with anyone was when someone forced me to compete with them. And then it hurt them and me so every time I compete with anyone, it hurts us so badly. I mean, it's giving me trauma that I just don't compete, period. The only I don't, you know, I don't like the world's definition of competition. I fucking hate it. It takes, it pulls us apart. It makes us not collaborative. Um, so I don't, so I think, you know, to say, you know, I beat anyone out. I didn't beat anyone out. I don't think, I think there's room for all of us, but I think there's a time and place and space for everything we care about. And I am honored and grateful that I was seen by the LA times and that community, you know, and that, you know, led by Bill Addison and a critic who really saw it at as a sign of the times. Um, and that's what it is. It's just people noticing. And I think a lot of times when you get an award or you don't, it's just, it sometimes, it, yes, you have to work hard. I work very, very hard, but you have to be true to yourself. And then the person judging that or a committee judging that, it's 
to their benefit. It makes sense to them and what their canon and what their zeitgeist is. And sometimes you fit into that zeitgeist and it's held in alignment. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, I'm ahead of my time so much. And then there's times when I feel like I'm so behind the times. And it's all alignment. And when you get those awards, it's an alignment. Just like a car accident, bad things happen when there's a bad alignment, right? Because you can be walking that same street or driving that same street every day, same exact speed. And then it's just someone who does something different and you just, you know, you don't notice or they don't notice. And then an accident happens. Accidents take, you know, the percentage of it happening compared to how much you drive is very little. Winning awards is the same way, but it's truly an alignment of every force that comes together. That's a great way of looking at it. I had uh, somebody on the podcast, Scott Lee. He's in the new uh, Tourist Guide to Love. He said the same thing about competition. It's like you really can't compete. Really, you just not even. And I said, what about uh, your own self from yesterday? He's like, no, 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 you can't even compete. You just have to do you every single day. And now this whole you know, idea of alignment really makes sense because, you know, what are we really the best of right we're just you're like you you're just I, i've met you and uh, you're just doing you to the best of who you are and i can see that the alignment and the idea of timing really has its own place in in our universe thank you ken for seeing that because i think i've worked every single day in my life to be the best me and to help everyone be the best them and I think that's the fluidity and acceptance that the world, I've been working at this for a long, long time. And to get to talk about it today is a lifetime worth of work yeah. because we've had so much, you know, pressed upon us, either it be colonization or white supremacy in the systems. You know, it's like you have to find your own voice and your own way within everything that was working against you. You just have to be the best you. And I have been preaching this and been a living model of this for a long, long time. It hasn't been easy. But the human beings today get to do this because Scott and I have been doing this for a really long time. And we praise this. We This is the, our way of living to harmonize. And it's hard work because not everyone agrees with you because once you say that, someone will try to ask you right away to compete with them. And you'll, you, and, and you'll fall in that trap. And I'll fall in that trap once in a while. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I really don't care. I mean, <laughs> you can't, right? And it's really funny because I'll tell you the most, you know, I do, you know, I have speaking engagements. I do, you know, TV. I do all this media. But the reason... I'm not known or I don't want to be known is because 90% of the things that come through for work for me is competition shows. And I say no to every single one of them because you know why most of the media out there for food, for the food world is competitions. And I just don't, I'm like, why are we competing? Why don't we write great narratives? Why don't we tell great stories that harmonizes us? It's a good point. You know, um, having, when I go to people's homes, um, like I've been to yours, I look at their book collection. And, you know, I got to sit and have lunch with you and Chikwe Mai. And I was looking at all the books and the different subjects that you're into. And I was wondering what contributed to the sort of 
it's almost specificity because when you look at the books, there's so many titles and there's so many subjects, but there's also the specificity that brings the character of the food that you create out. What do you think contributes to this sort of level of detail and the ability for you to kind of have developed this um, keen sense of specificity? Because that's what I see when I see your book collection and what you've read. It's like very specific things that are that are all over the, the wall, the book, the bookshelf. Ken, I'm a nerd. I'm a total nerd. That's why I think I like I like really when I dive into something, yeah. I like to go as deep as I can or deep as you know the world will let me. It's because I'm a nerd. I like to get very specific because I think you know, I think you start off when you're younger with a lot of general ideas of the world, but as you start to have more interests, you go deeper and more specific on things that you know that it's richer. When you go deeper, it's richer, it's nerdier. Um, I welcome it. Um, but I think in order to get to that place, it's not you don't get to that go to that place right away. You have to start with a general understanding of how you're gonna fit in this world and what's gonna make it work for you. And that takes like, as we all know, like three decades of our lives. Yeah. It's not until in, you know, I'm a little old, you know. I'm 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 a proud Gen Xer, but the first the first two decades of my life was being a good daughter, being a good Vietnamese daughter, why and living important? my parents' truth. Right? Why, why was that important to you to be a good daughter? I love my parents. They sacrificed everything for us. It's a narrative that we don't he we hear of a specific generation in the past, and. We see it because most of us still talk about how hard our parents work and the funny things they do and how, you know, they will feed you before they feed themselves and they will struggle and suffer to give you everything. And when you, the moment you start seeing that the rest of the world isn't like that, the first peek at that, you're like, wait a minute, holy cow. Oh my gosh. Like my parents are heroes. You've been hating that, you know, you've been hating how, they won't allow you to go to sleepovers. You've been hating them because you don't get the right shoes. You've been like, you know, you you know, you're such kids are so ungrateful because yeah. they think they should get everything right. But then the minute that switch happens in your late teens or 20s, you just because my parents really wanted to shield any worries from us. But the minute you realize how hard it is to shield your kid from worry by struggling so hard, if you're an astute human being you notice. And then you spend the next almost decade making them feel proud of you because they work so hard and you want to show them a little bit of hope. So it's a back and forth, you know, in families, it's back and forth. You, you know, it's, it's gratefulness and generosity and graciousness. It goes back and forth. You know, and I think while I was growing, my parents were growing. My parents mm -hmm. Had, my mom had me when she was 18, small, t you know, like she's, she was a child, you know, and she does it in a very, from a very small village, you know, how does, you know, she come to like, um, you know, the United States and LA and figure all this out. So they are growing while we're growing. And I think once you become astute to that as a child, you really work hard to make those parents have so a better life. You spent you said 20 years being a good daughter. That means, or it sounds like you were focused on 
careers that would, or things that would make them happy and not you happy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So absolutely. When did that switch? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the two decades and then what made you switch over and say, you know what, I'm done pleasing you guys. I'm, I got to do my thing. I think, I don't think it was ever like a, like a single binary switch. I think it was a fluidity. It was, you know, it was, I think I learned early on on how to make the, my, how to deal with the world. I have really bad ADHD and it was undiagnosed throughout my childhood. But if you look at, if I look back, like every single report card was like, she's a daydreamer, really good grades, but you know, she, she can't keep focused, but no one like sent me, they sent me to gifted and talented instead of sending me to like, you know, get help for like focusing. Right. And that's like, and it's, it's an Asian, it's like, you know, of a certain generation, there was a lot of us like that. So it was like, and now they have all these terms and words. And back then they did it. Right. So my parents like, you're smart. You're just weird. You're just, and my parents literally sat me down and my parents are very, the way they raised us is very fluid and very, you know, they had their trials and tribulations, but we were, we were, I was paired with very good parents and they were paired with a very challenging child who questioned everything, um, who was like just innocent, but so curious which is like the worst combo. The worst Asian combo is innocent and curious because you can't tell her what to do because she'll just question you to the nth you know, degree. And, but so naive that can't put the pieces together of reality. And I was that kid. I was just, you know, it's partly ADHD. It's partly, you know, my parents raised me so protective, were so protective. And I think for me, I just felt this boxed in my entire life and some of it was literal, you know, because I was such a wild, my parents called me the wild child. Oh, my whole extended family called me the wild child. They're like, we don't know what she's up to. She's just weird. But my parents literally sat me down and said, okay, you're a weird kid. We get it. You're not going to change. They, you know, that they don't use the word weird. They use the word stubborn. But really what they mean is weird. Um, and, you know, like, you know, like, you know, the, like, you know, like, the in the Vietnamese term that they use is gung dao. That means no. you have a hard head. Like you can't you can't change her mind. But what it is is I'm so it's true. I'm so stuck on my principles of understanding that I have to understand it. Like I had a like I my dad still tells a story, and then I'll go back to why you know the fluidity. But my dad has a story of me going, you know, I, I'm perceptive, and you know, and it be like um, so celery. I love my mom says. You know, she doesn't like the old cell. Then, you know, you know, Gonza, you know, can, you know, and and then I'm like, oh, and then I went to the store and I go, oh, bokan bokan jack, and they started laughing because that's the, and he's like, oh, kanon, and I'm like, no, it's jack because it's young, and I was like, I convinced him that his word usage was wrong, and this is like three year old me, right? Wow. And it's like, and I've always had, and so my dad and I have these really fun word plays. We've always had this relationship, but I think in my teenage years, I was like the world didn't fit for me. And my dad finally like just drew this line in the sand. And he just said, okay, here's the deal. There's this line right here, long line. We need to fit, we need to meet in the middle somewhere. And he goes, but the problem is I'm not meeting you in the middle. I'm meeting closer to you. If this is you and this is me, I have to go through many decades of war, of patriarchy, of Confucianism, which is patriarchal and 
having no psychological background, no way of raising an American kid. This is you, American kid. You just need to see where I've been and walk towards me. And he's like, that's all I need you to understand. He said that to you? He said that to me like, and I was like nine. I got it though. Pretty brilliant of him to say that. Yeah, I got it though, because he was so frustrated. I think he was like ready to cry. And, you know, and the thing is like, my parents didn't want to, they didn't want to hit us. That was like the big thing. But they're very progressive. But once in a while, he's just like, I have no other way of this working. You know, and like it right now, you know, Roy's like, you know, I'm going to swap you. And it's like the worst threat to us because we're like, ah. And, you know, we were like, and we were like of the generation, we're like, we're not called child services. Ah, you know, and so they were like, a, so it was like this multiple levels of fear from all sides, but there's no tangible way of taking care of it because we couldn't speak the same language. And so my dad finally, he's like, we're not speaking the same language. I just need you to see where I've been. So you have a little bit of understanding of how hard this is for me too. I just need you to understand this. That's it. You don't even need to walk this life. I just need you to understand that this is where I've walked. You, you know, the beauty of this sort of mitigating between our generation and our parents generation it produces these beautiful characters and stories like you and the products the human products of these generation mixing is like these wonderful stories that and i often think about the luxury of our next generation and do you think that we still have this like beauty because now we speak the same language english with our kids and the next generation but is there another iteration that comes out this beautiful, you know, or is it something yeah. else? What is it coming out and looking like? It, it, you know what? It's really, I think we value this beauty so much that sometimes like we want to contrive stories or ways of living so our kids can have it. There's parts of me that, you know, I tell Aaron, you know, my partner, I'm like, I wish we can just make everyone have a third culture. You know, like, so my third, I'm Vietnamese, there's American, and then, but I'm neither. I'm a third culture. Right. So I wish everyone had a third culture because it makes you more empathetic. It makes your life richer. It makes your understanding of who you are much deeper because you're not going to survive being a third culture person without figuring out how you fit into this whole thing. No. And so you, so the next generation, you almost have to like make it more. It depends on who you are, right? If this richness is like, you know, if it's really important to you and it's, you know, you let your kids travel, you make them live in, you make them speak another language, you make them go somewhere where they don't know anything and have them freak out a little bit. And, but it's contrived, right? It's not out of survival. It's like, you almost have to pay for them to have this third culture experience. Um, and it's just, you know, I think everyone's always going to have moments of uncomfortability and anxiety. We just didn't call it that. We just called it life, you know, and I think that's the thing that's really funny now. It's like, you know, I, I, you know, I have, you know, a young, you know, a young human and, you know, a young adult in my life, you know, in our family, you know, my daughter's 20 and like, you know, there's always like, and, you know, my team members are in their twenties too. There's always like this anxiety thing and, you know, and I really give it to them as, you know, I'm like, I accept it. I honor it. I'm like, you know, don't, don't deal with your anxiety because I know it's all relative but at the same time, I'm like, God, this word is like damaging because it's an end-all, be-all diagnosis rather than like you're going through a fluid moment oh. of gray area, yeah. of unknown. Be comfortable. Be Cope with this unknown. How do you 
you know, I, I deal with stuff all the time that in the unknown, I love the unknown. It's uncomfortable. It makes my stomach, it makes me want to puke my brains out all the time, but I'm used to that feeling. I'm like, okay. Or before you go on stage, you don't know, you know, you're, you know, I'm talking to you, you and I specifically the things we share. We don't know who's going to be in front of us. You don't know what's, you know, who's going to cancel us, but you have to still take that risk and still say your truth. But people are so afraid right now because the, you know, because of how big media, because anyone can be a big media person all of a sudden. And I think people don't get to practice. And I feel like people don't get to practice who they are in safe spaces, you know? And for me, like, that's the thing growing up is I never knew that anyone outside of my family is ever going to know me. So it was always, always a safe space. The worst thing that can happen is my siblings making fun of me going, men, you're crazy. <laughs> men, that's so ridiculous, you know? But that's like the worst criticism I can get. So my, my siblings still continue to be my worst critics because they're like, they think it's putting me down a few notch, but I'm like, it's like, I've had to fend this my entire life, right? <laughs> well, you know, what's really crazy is you didn't come from food, right? No. Can you, I, you know, tell me about that? I did not come from food because I'm of the generation where my parents think food in restaurants, specifically restaurant food, is a service job. And, te- and they're right. Technically, it is. And my parents wanted me to stay away from physically servicing anyone. And they were so anti-colonial. Like, they were, like, so, like, richly anti-colonial. They're like, I don't want you taking care of others in that way. I want you to take care of them intellectually. The only way we can do this is take care of people intellectually. They're like, we're not going to be of service. You know, like, like, you know, my mom wanted to make some extra money and, she, and my dad's like, you know, they would fight, you know, cause like she wanted to make some extra. She goes, I'm going to go get, you know, like all these, you know, like women doing nails. And then my dad was just like, I don't want us to be of service to anyone. And the thing is, my dad comes from a lot of privilege. My dad has, and my mom doesn't. So, mm-hmm. so she's very practical. Right. And so I, I had to contend with this. I didn't know at the time, but my dad is very philosophical and he's very, he's patriarchal, you know, but he didn't, you know, so, but we did grow up saying, you sit, I've worked my ass off. I have left a country for us to get the ability to use our intellect again. So my dad fought for our rights to use our intellect again every day. And that's really hard, you know, because what if you're a dumb kid, you know, and you're like, we're like, I don't know how to use my intellect. You know, and so, but at home, we were like cooking for me. I think that's why I love cooking and it's such a joy so much because it was a treat when I was allowed to cook, you know? And the thing is, I'm, when you're a kid, you're always going to be messy and not do it right. It would drive my mom, my mom, who's the best cook in the world and a perfectionist. She doesn't want me messing up her kitchen. She doesn't want the wrong knife cuts. She doesn't want to be responsible if there's a thousand people coming, you know, or a church community group and that's a bad knife cut. So she's going to do it herself. She's not going to let the kid do it. You know, the kid can clean, but so it's really, so I was really, so I grew up living with the best cook, the most perfectionist of the perfections and who's so good at it that I absorbed all that osmosisly but wasn't really allowed to practice it. The only practice I was able to do, which makes me who I am, was I was able to play with all the condiments. Because number one, it drove my, it drove my family crazy, drove my siblings crazy. Every single meal we had 
would somehow turn into this is why I love Andrew Nguyen's new book. Every single meal, even to this day at my parents' house, would somehow turn into a 20 course meal. My mom would make the first 10 courses. And then for me, I would bring the next 10 courses and drive my family nuts because I would bring all the condiments out from the fridge. I would bring all the mengjang out and I'll just start creating my own combinations wow. of flavors. And then, you know, and even when I eat rice, I eat it like so, with so many different pairings, the way I eat it together. My parents are like, can you please eat like a normal person? And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Mm. So I'm just going to eat it the way. And so I would just mix things, you know, and I would be very, ever since I was a kid, I drove my family nuts. Like my sister's afraid of ketchup because she was like, you would use it in the weirdest places. And she'd be afraid of mustard because she's like, Min's going to mustard us up in some weird dish she's going to make. And it's because I really, I really love mixing flavors. And it just made me a weird kid. You know, and my mom, my mom would describe me as, you know, so that means you're so mixed up. You're very, you're very tangled. And I think that tanglement makes me who, who I am. Yes, I have to spend time detangling it so others can understand me. But that process of making, having others understand me is my life's work. And I think it makes me very empathetic for others who don't have a voice or can't communicate their expression. So like finding a way to express myself is really important because I'm, I'm constantly misunderstood because, you know, I'm like that baby that, you know, you, that you want something and then they give you all the options, give you the words and you're like, no, no, that's not it. That's not it. That's it. That's me my entire life, even to this day. Yeah. Uh, let me, let me latch onto this idea of entanglement because your, uh, all the write-ups and, and all the food, uh, when I'm reading about all of this stuff, you could see the level of entanglement. Uh, you could see the level of mixing and, and, and mad scientist action, but there is clarity to the end product, right? Like the way it's presented, the way it's written about, on your menu perhaps, it's all kind of organized. But so how do you go from chaos and entanglement to something that's like profound. It becomes like such a big thing once it's all at the end of the product cycle. I hope Ooh, that that's such a good question, Kenny. Like in my mind, it's always been clear. It's just that there's no words or expressions in the world that exist yet. So I have to keep latching on to things that exist in the world that make sense to others. And I think I didn't finish the story of what my parents told me when I was younger that changed my world. I was boxed in, but that box in gave me freedom. My, this was, my parents, one day, like, you know, I was just getting into a lot of trouble. And by trouble, it means I just talk back a lot. And yeah. I just, and my parents said, you know, it's, it's ADHD. It's all these things that they don't know now exist. So they, um, they really clarified it for me. They said, you can be a weirdo but you can only be a weirdo in your room. Because I said, when you go out into the world, you have to be thoughtful of what others are experiencing and how they don't have time for this weirdoness. So be like them. So you have, so it's more thoughtful to be like them so they can comprehend you. And then they, you know, so, and then they said, if you need to be weirdo, you have two places. You have your bedroom, you can draw, you know, I would draw on the walls. I would do things that are very, you know, like bad kid things. I do them all because I was just like, it was all in my head. I couldn't, you know, couldn't get out. And then they gave me this, the second tool they gave me was a library card. 
they gave me a library card. That's like, that's why I have such specific books. Cause like they would give me the, my the library card and I would spend hours. I had the best library going up. It was in Huntington beach. And then the LA public library. So I love libraries because it was my key to being crazy. Cause I would read things about people who were like more intense than me that had more ideas than me. And then, so I think that base of knowledge and that way of thinking helps me become an editor for others. And I've been an editor for others my entire life because I, everything I say, people are like, nope, nope, nope. So I have to like start communicating in language because I don't really think in the language or the words because it doesn't exist. So I have to really say, okay, what, how do people understand? How do I communicate my idea that doesn't exist in the world yet? What, what cultural and constructs that exist can I use to communicate this idea? And so I had to, in order to do that, you have to be a, a student of language and of art and the canon, students of canon, so I can do what people want me to do, is yeah. to describe this in canons that they understand. But my world, my canon doesn't exist in the world because I exist in a very specific place and time and human being, right? And I I have practiced that weirdness every day. You're a true artist. True weirdo. <laughs> so when you uh, are growing up and your parents are, uh, it sounds like they're really into academics and, you know, taking the school route, you had to pursue a, a, a particular path, right? You, it wasn't to go to culinary school. You had to go and what did you do? So, um, God, you know, I say a lot of things to satisfy my parents. Okay, so, you know, when I was really young and I was, you know, and, and I think it's like kids today don't think about these things the same way I did. But, you know, when all of my friends were going through their sexual exploration, I was a nerd. So I didn't get it. So I'm like, I'm just going to, you know, my parents are Vietnamese Catholics. And so I was, and I said, I think I'm going to be a nun because I don't know what they're talking about. And I really don't really care and I'm just going to be a nun because I don't have to, then I can just be asexual, then I can just like, you know, do what I want. So I like, I really told my parents, I'm like, I want to be a nun, but not because of the reasons they think I want to be a nun, like to devote myself to God. It, I just wanted to be a nun because I'm like, no one's going to ask me anything because I'm going to be like cloistered, you know, and not only did I want to be a nun, I want to be a cloistered, cloistered nun. And there's a big difference. Yeah, so I'm like, you know what? No one's going to talk. And I thought, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the dream. Like, no one's going to talk to me. I can be in nature. I can run wild. Like, you know, and like for me, I'm like, serving God is just like, you know, the, you know, the byproduct That's of right. like, you know, getting this freedom. <laughs> like for me, being a cloistered nun was my way of getting freedom. But how did you know about cloistered nuns? Where'd you see it? Because, because my parents are Catholics. My parents like support, like, you know, my parents support nuns. So I know all this, like I grew up with this, this is language, right? So again, I had to find a language that yeah. they understood. They weren't going to understand that I'm going to be a weirdo, you know, hermit artist in the middle of nowhere. They weren't going to understand that. But if you look at it, a nun is the same thing. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I took their construct and I'm like, I'm going to be a nun. So they're like, okay, then we're going to send you to like nun school. And then I'm like, okay. Then I went to nun school. I'm like, I don't like nun school. I really don't like nun school. Where did you go to nun school? <laughs> like, you know, like there's like, you know, there's like, you know, pathways, you know, in the, you know, in school and Vietnamese school and Catholic school. And I'm like, actually, I don't know if I believe in this stuff. I, I think some of this stuff is like not for me because, you know, I think there's inequity. And then all of a sudden I started thinking about inequities in, you know, women versus men. And, you know, da, da, da. and then I'm like, wait, I don't like this nun, nun world. I, I admire them, but, you know, and I will always stand up for good nuns, but 
not for me, right? So that's so that's the first young preteen way of thinking, right? And then, you know, because I'm like, God, I want to be this. You know, and I was one of those kids that I was a little envious of people who knew what they wanted to do because I always felt like I was imposturing these things, these constructs to make my parents happy because I'm like, I don't really know if that's what I want, but I need to make them happy. So let's choose something. And then so I'm like, okay, that's out of the way. Okay. So, you know, then I went and took like, you know, did really well in a bio course or something, you know, and I'm like, you know what, I can, I can get on board with this bio and math stuff. You know, I, I think I can do pre-med. And then, you know, like the first like practical practicum in college, I'm like, I just like puke my brains off. I'm like, oh my God, I don't like blood. I don't like the smell of formaldehyde. I hate all this. So that's not, you know, like, I'm like used to like high school biology and I'm like, oh God, like, I'm not going to be pre-med anymore because God knows I have to deal with formaldehyde the rest of my life. And, you know, and the smell of decay and the smell of, you know, like the smell of, and this is when I realized like sense of smell, like my sense, I'm such a sensitive being that sense of smell, taste, feel, I, I feel it so much that I just have this visceral, like, you know, when I go to hospice, I just had this visceral, like, I would just want to puke, you know, that smell of like, sanitation yeah and decay and sadness i know that smell and it's growing and i know if you go to like a butcher shop you know that smell and it just freaks me out right so that smell is what medical school pre-med smells like so that wasn't gonna work i'm like oh man like i'm like what next mom you know and every time that happened i'm like mom there's gonna be like a weirdo artist because like she's like what do you want to do i'm like i just want to like just draw things and write things and do crazy things like i've always because my whole life you know like my room's filled with just drawings and you know words and you know collages and just like very i'm very visual you know and i'm very and i'm just adhd like all over the place and words and and then but i couldn't there's no there's no construct in my parents world that fit this thing that I wanted to do. And then, then I'm like, okay, I'm like, well, I'm kind of good with words and I'm really good with defending myself and my thoughts for law school, which I, was kind of a good thing, right? I'm like, okay, I can do this. And I'm like, okay, but the really, what really was exciting to me was, um, was language and writing and theater, right? Theater is really exciting to me because it's like this very specific made up world with words. So it's really, you know, so really profoundly like, affected me. I'm like, okay. And then I can make these sets because the thing is at the time, visual art was not, it was not in play. Like my parents were just like, every time I brought it up, they're like, nope, no way, no how, like, no, 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 no. And they would discourage it, you know? And they would just, they were very, cause they just like, they're like, what are you going to do with this, this drawing or this stuff? And they're like, you can get real. And they saw it, it's just craftsmanship. And they're like, you can draw the best you want all day long, but they didn't realize the strength was not in the craftsmanship. It was in the ideas. Wow. And they didn't understand that. And that's the same with any art form. If you think about music, it's not about the craftsmanship. It's about the ideas. It's about mm -hmm. what you're conveying to change somebody's emotional state. And I yeah. think food is the same way. Food is not how well you flavor things or how well you, how good of a, a, a chef you are. It's really how do you move somebody from here to here? And I think right. with film as well. Totally. But I think like, but I think good craftsmanship helps you because it gives you time. Because in order to be that better craftsperson, you need, it gives you time to build your story and to form who you are. So for me, that, that, that act of doing and repetition is very helpful. It helps me 
it gives it it makes my brain work in different ways because while I'm working on the craft, it helps me craft my story. <laughs> but it helps, you know, it helps me bring meaning to it because I always have this over when I start a project, I always have this big vision. But when I tell people, they just go, whoa, how do we help you? And I'm like, they're like, oh, my God, we're in a fate because you're so tiring and so big. And, you know, this is never going to happen. And then in my mind, I'm like, it's going to happen. And I really like, you know, like with Fenekite, like. I think Fenekite is the manifestation of how other I am in the best way. You know, and that was a, one of the very first times I'm like, you know what? my ideas matter. My artistry matters. And then I started, I started like figuring out, I'm like, why did it not matter before? You know, why was craft so important? Because you know, when you're an immigrant, when you're a worker, your craft matters, your ideas don't. And that's what the very first time when I'm like, you know what, I kind of have a right to be an artist. I've lived a really long time. And I really understand this. And the, but I'm still struggling. The term artist still eludes me. And so I think, you know, and I think this is like Gen X's problems or people's insecurities, including my, my own insecurities, they, they hold you back because like for a long time, I didn't want to be called a chef. And then, cause to me, a chef meant someone who not only created a menu, but was able to maintain a restaurant kitchen, right? Like someone who had it's colonial because the French built that brigade system and they impose it on all the, all fine dining restaurants oh, in the yeah. world. Right. And so you, so you work towards this thing and then you, and, and then when you get there, you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't like this. I'm going to, and so then, you know, so I kept doing that. I kept on getting this, you know, this white supremacist Eurocentric pinnacle in my life. It happens a lot in my life. And then I'm like, wait, I don't like it. This is not what I expected. So let me erase everything and break it all down and redo it. And I think that's what I keep doing is I come, you know, I, I, there's areas of studies that I'm interested in or areas of work, but you don't get a seat at the table if your craft is shitty, at least in my generation. If you're a bad writer, you don't get to write books that you, you, that you're proud of, or, you know, you don't, you don't. So and same with restaurants, if your craft is bad, Things are changing, but do we want bad craft in the world? Do we want people who don't understand canons, who don't understand lineage, who don't understand basic foundational stuff? And I think understanding canons and constructs are important because that's how I had to deal with the world. Because how are we to connect communally when there's no shared commonality and constructs? And so for me, it's like one for them, one for me, one for them, one for me, one for them, one for me. And I think that's fluidity. And that's like, that's what equity looks like also. You know, it builds in this equitable way of bringing people in and inclusivity. It's a hard thing to imagine. It's not an easy concept for me to just tell you in one interview. I think I have to spend a lifetime figuring this out. But I really believe that this complex sense of fluidity and not it's not necessarily tangible and it's definitely not black and white and binary but how do we connect on it so so others can understand us because at the end of the day i'm a humanist i love connecting with other humans kenny why are you letting me ramble on no i love it because i am learning so much 
Because here, you know, when we sit and we um, read, I had friends who asked me uh, when in 2021, they said, is there any way you can get us a table at Finnekite? I'm like, I can't even get to, I can't even get to men to get her on the show. How can I get you a table? I had multiple people reach out to me. Can you get me? So, and then I get to sit here and I'm listening to you, quote unquote, ramble, it, which is a mind fuck because, you know, you, you, I, I'm playing back the tape in my head about my friend saying, can you give me a table? And the icon who's behind the 20,000 names that are in this wait list or whatever. And then I get to see and peer behind the curtain of what makes you tick. So that's the beauty of sort of like the privilege of where I get to sit is to hear you ramble. So I'm not going to stop it. Why would I stop this when, you know, everybody can see the veneer of, you know, the, the, the wait list and the few years to get on in, into the restaurant. When I can sit here and I go, oh my God, I have a front row seat to hear the magical inner workings of your mind. And I want more of that. I, I wish I had like nine hours, you know, get you back on multiple, multiple, multiple times. I have 30 questions here prepared and I haven't even gotten to one question yet. So this is something that I feel lucky and fortunate to to be able to sit with you. I mean, I waited really years to, to do this with you. Oh, Ken, I am so grateful. I'm so, I'm so grateful am... for how thoughtful you are. And I just, all of that stuff you mentioned is not, it's a construct, right? Like, like yes, my time is busy, but it's like, I, we just weren't ready to meet yet. Because yeah, totally. I'm not like I would have given you some bullshit veneer answer as I have been to everyone in the last three years because I was scared and I had to hide behind that work. And I am only now starting to like, you know, rub a little bit of the smoke and mirrors to say, actually, there's a shitload more ideas, dude. That was just like that was like what I was showing the world and expressing the world that in a construct that I knew you all understand. So, because there's a lot, you know, it's like, there's a lot of trauma and wonderfulness that's come through this, but I don't know. It's just like, I think I'm at the point where I, it's my practice of courageousness has become fearless. And I think I'm somewhat fearless now because the thing is when you, you are afraid because one is afraid and have fear because they have something to lose. I have the things that I want. I have nothing to lose. Sharing ideas, someone disagreeing with me or quote unquote canceling me. I don't really care because I'm like, I've lived every day doing the right thing. It might not be the zeitgeist of the world right now. It may be it's misalignment temporarily, but I still practice being me. I still take those, you know, I still care about others. I'm still thoughtful. And so I think it's really an honor to be right here right now with you because the timing's perfect. Um, I, you're the very first person I'm having this honest discussion with in this thinking that I'm doing. Right. And, you know, I think when I'm in front of others in a restaurant, I serve the thing that my parents told me not to do, but I serve, I serve so I can have the brain space to share and the space to share. It's a, it's a dialogue. It's an exchange. It's not transactional, but it's, it's an emotional, artistic 
exchange. What do you what do you think you would be doing if you weren't cooking or if it wasn't related? You know, to be honest with you, it's something I'm thinking for reals. <laughs> it's not. I it, you know, it's I'm saying it first here and now. I'm quietly quitting cooking. I think the system has gotten not cooking, cooking in a restaurant. I love cooking. I love I love the medium of the culinary world and the medium it's provided me to express myself. I love it. I want to go deeper. But I've tapped out in the restaurant world, tapped out. And I'm struggling with it right now because I'm like, I think I have to quietly quit the restaurant, but it's hard because that's my career of the last two decades. Right. And how do you transition to the next thing? And for me, I've been doing the next thing for the last 50 years of my life, but how do I, how do I show this vulnerability to the world? Right? Like if I had, if I can spend less time worrying about a small business, which I'm very bad at, I'm going to admit, you know, I never wanted to be a small, I never want to be an owner. That's not my thing. I, you know, and, and we, we talk, cause like, you know, Aaron and I talk about beef and the hustle culture and I'm like, honey, I don't have any hustle in me. And he goes, no, you don't. And I said, because I don't want to run a business. I don't want to own people. I don't want to, I think I'm anti owning anything. As you know, you've seen, you know, my life, like I'm a mess. I don't like ownership of stuff. I like accountability of my own thoughts and sharing that with the world, but I don't like physical ownership. I don't like restaurants. So I am I'm contending with that. So I have to get out of the restaurant world because the top place for a restaurant world is being an executive chef at a hotel somewhere, money. I don't want to do that or owning stuff. I don't know if I really want to do that. I, it's a practical thing that I do. But it's not the best place for me to express myself. You're you're a real artist. No, you have the markings of, you know, cheetahs have spots. <laughs> they run fast. I mean, if it runs like a cheetah, looks like a cheetah, it's a cheetah. I mean, it's just, you know, you have the markings of a true artist, and true artists are not, you know, we we don't walk on this earth. It's, it's just I know, but no one's giving me permission to be an artist, Kenny. I mean, I'm Vietnamese American. No one's people are gonna kill me to, if I was an artist. I'm afraid. I'm really insecure. Well, my my question is, when you make a comment like that, I mean, on a practical level, when you make a comment like "I'm quietly quitting," right? Doesn't that freak out the people that work for you? A freak out the 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 people that that you serve? I mean, because I want to eat at your restaurant one day and it freaks me out to hear that that will just go away and vanish at one point. If okay, that the the, the part about my guests, I guess I don't really care about as much because I will always service others in many ways. Talking to you right now is you and I being of service to our community. So that's so I'm not worried about that. I'm always going to have a form of expression to service others. My team, yeah, I freak them out. That's why I've gone through six teams during COVID. I don't lie about it because when they see me pushing further into art, 
you can't compartmentalize that or systemize that. So it freaks them out. So they quit. They're like, this restaurant's going to fail. I'm going to quit before it fails. Um, this is disorganized. I'm going to quit before it gets more disorganized. But it, in my eyes, it's never disorganized. I'm like, oh, no, it's very organized. There's a system there. You just don't know it. And then I try to explain it to them. They're like, I don't get this. This is, you know, and I'm dealing with younger generations who don't have the experiences that I do. Where I'm like, dude, you just have to do this. And then what I'm teaching you is agency and accountability. But they don't want to learn agency and accountability because it's not their place in life yet. They want to learn about systems. And that's the thing that I'm contending with with the world is the world likes systems. Everyone talks about operations. Everyone wants a standard operating procedure or manual. People want that. I said, this is the operating manual, but our food is, the, the secret to our food is not the operating manual. It's touch and feel and understanding ingredients, understanding the people, understanding the zeitgeist, understanding why we're doing this. And it doesn't exist in an operating manual. And then that's when I realized, I'm like, oh man, I have seen it. I've, I've seen this for a decade. It's not new to me that automation and people want convenience. That's been happening for a decade, but it has gotten amplified during COVID because people now they've realized they can just use digital stuff. They can they can not see people. It can be delivered to their door. All of that's fine and great. But if you're going to be thinking like that, then the workers are going to be thinking it doesn't matter how I do it. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, and then when you ask them, why did that go wrong? They're like, I followed the recipe. They're always going to answer, I followed the recipe. And they're not wrong. But the recipe is a guideline, right? When you cook, this is where, you know, you have to go old school. If you're a really good cook, you have to understand the ingredients. If you're cooking, like, you know, we have a porridge shop. My porridge is very specific. I want it to be bloomed. I want the rice to be nice and fat and juicy. And then all of that goodness goes into the rice grain. And then that starchiness is very clean. So you need to know how to turn the temperature on, how to cook. It's really hard. People think it's easy cooking porridge chow. It's not. It's like very, you know, I've gone through literally dozens of cooks because I'm like, well, and then finally, I'll tell you how I ended up. But I kept a losing cook because I'm like, it's not. I can teach you, but you have to pay attention, not to the procedure, but to your heart. If I tell you that it needs to feel good in your mouth, what does that mean? It needs to set this comfort, right? And it means different. Then I realize it meant, means different things to different people. But they're like, why, are we, why is this at a restaurant? This is too hard. We're never going to make money. And then they start getting their minds that we're never going to make money because they're right. But I, it took me a few years to realize, oh, yeah, we're never going to make money because this is too hard. You can't replicate this. So now knowing this, I'm like, okay, what am I contending with? Um, because I really understand ingredients. I really love it. Because the thing is, if you get rice that you've had in storage a little longer, it's going to be drier and it's going to be different. And then you get, you know, we're very specific in the rice we use, right? And then if you get rice that's been stored next to something else, it can absorb different flavors. So you have to do different things to it, but no cook is going to spend this much time exploring it because they don't nerd out and geek out the way I do over a grain of rice. Wait. I smell it and touch it. If you put rice in a bin, like a like a plastic bin, and you put it next to a certain thing, it gets osmosis yeah. flavor. And then and then think of the rain, right? And think of how much moisture is in that rice. Think of the atmosphere and how much humidity. And is it hot humidity or cold humidity? 
it makes a difference. Because if it's in a lot of hot humidity, because it's next to the stove, it's going to start cooking and absorbing those flavors really quick. So, and it makes a difference. So storage is really important. And then looking at that and seeing what it does is really important. And then your stock, we haven't even talked about stock yet, is so important, right? It's like different. And then, you know, and for me, the way I do stock, no one like agrees with me because I want to kill me is I like to do everything separately. I like to do the if I'm doing a chicken stock, I like to do the chicken separately. I like to do the vegetables separately, each vegetable separately. And then I like to blend it. Because the thing is, you don't know how sweet this chicken is and how fatty this chicken is. And so you're going to need to blend it, right? This is the way I make porridge. And everyone's like, this is so ridiculous. This is Can you imagine being a worker in my team? You having to deal with crazy me because there's no metrics. Mm -hmm. right it's all feelings it's all like the way that you see food is just your own radar and your own sonar and your own way of kind of gauging flavor profiles that really it's changing and it's always in flux so how do your apostles carry out the mission of your gospel right it took That's me three years, Kenny. It took me three years and a lot of team members. And I, they're really good too. They're really, every single one who's worked with me are good people. I, the team I always gather are amazing human beings who have whole and complete lives of their own, who I just get to intersect for a very small part of their lives. And I understand that. So I'm very cognizant of that. But then I'm like, why is it? so difficult because the thing is i want them to be them but then i want them to cook my porridge <laughs> it, it doesn't match up right so that was like my preach for like three years during covid i'm like oh god okay this is like how do we figure this out and then the what i ultimately realize is porridge needs to take on individual expressions using the guideline i've set up so it's never going to be consistent it's never going to be. And you know what? It's like, I think in construct, in the world of construct, the word people use is founder. I don't know. You know, I don't think it's 100% right, but that's news. That's for the sake of the construct of this world. They use the word founder. I'm the founder. These are my recipes. This is what my intention is. Please come and add on to this canon hmm. and learn a few things and learn how to be thoughtful to ingredients and to human beings. That's what I'm good at. I'm very thoughtful of human beings and I'm very thoughtful ingredients. That's all I want you to learn in the kitchen. And I want you to be safe, clean, and have a deep understanding of ingredients. And that's my, those are the goals I set, right? And then it takes me a really long time to let go because, you know, if I know that it can be better, I get in there and make it better, but I can't do that. I have to sit there. And tell guests, I'm like, it's a different expression, but I'm like, oh, they're just, you know, in my mind, I'm like, they're just, I've been doing this for decades. It's in my blood. And I expect a cook to come off, even with the best skills to come off and cook something soulful. Can they cook something that's highly craft, has high craftsmanship? Absolutely. Maybe even higher craftsmanship than me, but not my soul, right? And how can I expect someone to have my soul? How can someone, I expect someone to have my trauma, my mom's hugs, my culture, lower C culture. I can't. And that's something that I'm having a very hard time with. I'm like, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want this stuff replicated. Or should I? I don't know. I'm getting opinions. Should I? I don't know. 
know, you know? No, I mean, I, I, look, I, my opinion, my strong opinion is you should never stop because I think the madness of it all, the beauty of, of listening to all of this is like, I want it to perpetuate because it's uh, such a, uh, it sounds such a genius way of approaching food. And, you know, why would you want to deprive us all of the creations that, so yeah, my, my vote is never stop. But at the same time, my other question, my previous question was, you know, well, let me introduce something here that that I, I think that that I want to talk to you about. Um, this is just an observation of mine. And maybe this sort of like this interjection of uh, or intersection and interjection of this idea. Um, I have noticed, and this is just my own observation, that uh, a lot of people in um, combat sports like MMA, uh, they 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 freely go back and forth uh, with comedy. So comedy people and uh, fighters uh, share a lot of same spaces. A lot of comedians do jujitsu and a lot of people in that world, you know. And what I have also noticed, a similar thing is people in film and food share the same DNA too. Um, I, I know a lot of guys who've gone back and forth from film to, to food and vice versa. And the whole lives are spent going back and forth. So it's almost feeling like um, I know that you have some background in film and it just sounds sometimes to me what I'm hearing you is this idea of story is somehow interweaved and projected in the way that you make food. And it's even down to the ingredients, it sounds like everything is a story that's sort of intersecting. And I want to ask you, what else would you be doing if it wasn't for food? Is it film? Is it storytelling? What would that be? Or is it all sort of the same thing to you? You know what? It's all sort of the same thing to me. I think an expression is an expression yeah. is an expression. And it just the time and place of the medium you choose is going to be telling because you have to choose the best medium for the story. Sometimes it's film. Sometimes it's, you know, visual art. Sometimes it's food. I think we need a wider definition of art because the thing is what is, you know, there's a hierarchy of art, you know, and food art is way at the bottom, right? Like visual arts, fine, fine visual arts, way at the top, singular collectible things, you know, the Van Goghs of the world. Right. And, you know, the hierarchy, right. And then film is up there. But film is also very, the tickets, you know, that people see, it's very democratic. You know, you can go, anyone can go see a film, right? So there's film because it's such a big spectrum. And then other art, right? And then there's like, and then there's like performance art, culinary arts way at the bottom. And so my, I know that my job personally is to bring culinary arts as an art form. I have to bring it up here. I have to move, I have to shift it. I, I know that, right? And I know that that's the service I'm doing to the food form because food workers work really hard. They work really hard and they they are the hardest working of the bunch, food workers. Because when you make a film, you do it and then you get a break and everyone sees it a thousand times. You um, you create a piece of art. Let's say you're at the, ech the top echelon of your work. You, you know, you have it at a museum or you have it at private collectors. It just needs to be temperature controlled. The lights need to be turned on and off. That's it. You don't need the operational work of replicating it every day. You don't need a kitchen. You don't need health department. You don't need any of that stuff. 
my work, I need so many different permits, so many different people, so many different taxes. You don't even know. It's not easy, right? And then film is a lot more collaborative. There's more people because people pay more. There's more budgets. There's structures. The structures that exist for film does not exist for, this is something I think about a lot. I think about as as artistic as I am, I'm very practical. And I think about systems. Maybe I'm, a, you know, I am so anti-systems because I can't figure them out. But food does not have a, as big of a, as big of a role as it has in our lives. There's no system of creating that work. Okay. There now, is, but what it, do you mean by system? Like an infrastructure? Like what are we comparing here? Can you right, okay? So you when you make a film, when you're like when you're a writer or a performer or a producer, there's a system, right? There's like outline your there's a producer there's a director there's a gaffer there's electrical there's talent you know the actors there's the system there's managers business managers there's these very defined ways of doing things in the food world you have cooks and chefs but you don't have a defined you don't have a distributor you have singular business people right if you're lucky right i don't have a business manager i don't have anyone representing me for work i don't you know like i don't for for other things for media sure but for food, like for like, there's no there's no money there. So therefore, there's no the the pie for food is not big enough to have it to make it collaborative. It's now, barely big enough to to pay your your team members. Right to be its own single existing entity. Yeah. Right, but it's because but, we don't we don't charge enough. But how could we create a structure for it? I think I'm working on it. It's this you and me talking. That's the beginning of it. Because when people see the value that when I can talk about the value that my team and I can bring, people start, it's, it's so hard for me to understand because I really want to work in a non-transactional world. But at the end of the day, the food world is very transactional. Even when you're doing it at the high level, it's a transaction. You service me and then you get to do this thing. You know, it's very transactional. Food is transactional. I think it's a hundred percent transactional. There's no other way to, there's no other way to kind of describe uh, in the commercial sense, right? Totally. And you know, you get this piece of food, you pay for it. Yeah. It's a transaction, right? And then the the people in it want. I think that's where I struggle. Is I'm, I've never had a transactional. I've never had a transactional relationship with the restaurant ever. Number one, I've never gotten paid. People like always like, how do you live? I'm like, well, number one, you know, I have a partner. Number two, I've made some good financial decisions. Number three, everything I wear has holes in it. If you notice, like, you know, I don't pay any money for anything. Like I just, you know, I'm very, I'm a scrappy kid. And I, you know, like proudly scrappy because I want to, I would rather work on the work, you know? I mean, there's times when, you know, people are like, you have to change a little bit. So that change might happen. So I don't look like. But what do you mean you never got paid? What like what does that mean? It means that I don't I don't pull a salary from any of my restaurants. How do you survive? I survive because I've made, you know, like I'm gonna be honest, like two a few ways. Number one, I have a good partnership with my partner, you know, my husband. And we are very, we manage our lives very tightly. Um, you know, he's an academic, he doesn't make money either, but we we don't spend a lot of money. You know, like we don't, you know, we don't have, you know, like for as much work as, as for 
both of us working hundreds of hours a week, there's no transactional monetary value to it. Wow. It, but it has, but mm. we're both incredibly wealthy with, you know, with ideas and a community. And that for us, that's what we want. So we're getting paid in community and in, you know, in community and in social change and in impact. That's how we get paid, right? And that's how, but it's not financial transactions. But I can't do that to my team. I can't be like, this is really awesome impact. Mm-hmm. And then they, they can't be like, how do we pay our rent? For me, like my our mortgage is less than everyone's rent in LA, <laughs> right? And this is, and what people don't realize as you get old, you make really good investments. I, this is where the Vietnamese in me comes from. My parents are like, make the, to, in order to get freedom, you suffer now. And for me, I'm still suffering now, but I still make the sacrifice every day. I've never stopped making the sacrifices. But ever since I was a kid, I always know you have to make the sacrifice. You have to, you have to give one to them, give, take, you know, give one to them so you can do your own thing. It's like my parents, right? Be thoughtful to others so you can stay in this weird room and go to the library. Yeah. And I've always, and I still do that. I'm still that scrappy, scarce. I still work off of that scarcity. And I think I have to, but I'm, that scarcity is changing because I think that scarcity is making me a weird, older, older, miserly person. And I don't want to be that. I'm generous to others, but incredibly ungenerous to myself. It makes my family and my daughter very she's very privileged but it makes it it breeds bad habits it breeds habits that is going to make us not survive in the future because as a whole world change their habits i'm going to be the one where i'm like i have no internet i have i don't have subscriptions to anything i don't know what you're talking about is that book oh let me let me see if i can get that book you know like you know it's like it's it's i can't live like i'm in the 1990s you know i can't live in that weird weird way where you know i just it i don't like I, for one, do not make the economy keep going. I keep like making it suppress it. So I'm understanding that. So I have to change that. But that change is hard for me, Kenny. You, I, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I just want to, that's why sometimes I just want to shut down and do art and explain this, this thing. You, you know, I, uh, I've never done this before, but I'm going to do this because I just think it's important to talk about my list of questions right now. We're not going to get into any of this stuff, but I just want to show you just some of the questions I prepared and might, we might have to do this round two because, you know, I really just uh, want the world to hear the questions that I have and to plant the seed of the audience hearing like, because we only got to scratch the surface, right? But in the questions, I think people can kind of read between the lines and saying, oh, my God, this, there's so much more going on with who you are because I had to do some re- a lot of research. Um, you know, this idea of uh, why is Vietnamese food priced lower than other foods is like Italian and Japanese. That's like one of my big questions. Uh, will you ever make a, a Vietnamese tang tui, like specific Vietnamese uh, restaurant? Your a whole time feeding seniors and the disadvantaged community seem to be a common thread among operations like yours and Helen at a social, um, Saigon social club in New York. Uh, why do you choose to do it? And what is, what, what, where, where did it all come from? Um, restaurants are so much more than food. Sometimes we already talk about 
when it comes to the music, the ambiance, the decor, what goes on to the planning of a place like Fenikite? And, you know, because that is something that I know you had to have your fingerprint on. Um, the politics of awards like James Beard, Michelin, I wanted to talk about the importance of those campaigns. Um, I wanted to hear what it meant to, means to be Vietnamese to you. Uh, why is it so important to get the Vietnamese? Is it important to get Vietnamese cuisine to the masses? Because sometimes it might not even be important to an artist like you. You're just, you know, your 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 ideas of like culture is doesn't sound like it's wanting to be confined to a box. So I wanted to get your perspective on that. Uh, there's so much more to food than just food. What other broader areas um, of the internet do you think is needed or or interest broader interest do you think is needed to be a high level uh, chef. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was what other art forms are you into? You know, but we, we, we touched on that. And then what would you be doing if you weren't into food? We, we didn't get to the direct answer to that, but we got, we skirted around that. Um, and when anyone starts out in business or your line of work, how important is it in the beginning to think about being the best? Because that's not what I've heard throughout this interview. It doesn't sound like you set out to be the best. It just sounds like you have such a broad interest in things and you get very specific and then that breeds becoming the best. Um, and then my question of have you been to Vietnam? Um, and then lastly, what is it, what is left to do with Vietnamese cuisine for you? Are we, what are we missing? Are we missing anything? So I have all these questions. I have more, but I just picked the one. Oh that... man, can you, I want to answer every single one of these. <laughs> They're such good questions. They're really such thoughtful, holistic questions. Um, I mean, I know your show is only going to be like 10 minutes or, you know, your podcast, right? It's like, you have to edit all this down. No, 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 no. I, I, this is a long form podca podcast. Yeah. I go hour to an hour and a half. Um, in the early days, I used to go to three or four hours. I used to sit here for a long time, but I know yeah. you don't have that kind of time. But um, you know what? I will. Uh, oh, you know what? I do have. Uh, I do have to have go to a lunch meeting. But we can. Gosh, I feel like. Let me. Why don't you let pick me. one to end it with? Um, whatever stuck out for you, and then we can do another uh, podcast. Uh, you know, because I had no idea what I was going into with you. You know, I thought that I would just sort of get these like these chunks of answers and I can just keep moving through like I normally do. But I love the tangential answers that, you know, cause I can't wait to send these off to the people who asked me if I could get them tickets to Finnekite. And these are people who are, you know, who eat at very good restaurants all the time and none of us were have been able to. So I want them to see the magic of what is Finnekite's, you know, I know you don't like that word founder, but you know, if you could pick one question, um that you heard you know what would what would you pick well i'm gonna finally directly answer if i wasn't um doing food what i'd be doing and i am quietly quitting from the food world so i can spend more time doing the intellectual scholastic and artistic work so i would i hope that you know i'm working towards it in all the best ways i'm already an artist but i think i want to um spend more time and really give it validity to being an artist and then figuring out what to write and how to express myself in the construct of the world and how it exists. Um, so that's the direct answer is to be, to, you know, be an artist and a storyteller um, and keep philosophy, you know, keep putting philosophies out there. 
that's what I would be doing. It has never changed. It's always what I've always done, but maybe in a more a way that people understand. Um, so that's that answer. And then the, what was your very first question? Um, you mean first question when I just started yeah, reading? Yeah, when you question. just rattled off. Uh, why is Vietnamese uh, food priced uh, so lower than other Vietnamese, uh, other like Japanese and Italian cuisines? Colonialism, but that's a, but we can skip that because that's a whole nother show. You know, I don't, I, you know, I think for me, like I don't, yeah, that's a whole nother show. There was another question about Vietnamese food and identity. You know, part of me, I have a Vietnamese, I have a Vietnamese centric um, project in mind, an homage to um, the thoughtfulness of Vietnamese techniques and practice. Um, I think that will come out in some form or another, either it be you know an art form, an art piece, um, or a restaurant. But I definitely, I'm definitely going to be, I'm definitely going to be celebrating my Vietnamese parents more and more as they get older and we know that our time with them is not going to, is not infinite anymore. Um, so I'm definitely going to be revisiting that quite a bit. So to answer your question, yes, a lot more identity and a lot more homages and a lot more bringing to the fold Vietnamese stories, Vietnamese American stories. Um, any last questions? I mean, I can go on forever. Yeah. What does it mean to be Vietnamese? You know, for me, it's for me being Vietnamese is culture, lowercase culture. It's what my mom passes on to me. Um, and I think culture, what your mom passes on to you, what your parents pass on to you is that kind of culture, that culture that's created in the family, that's created in your childhood. Um, that's Vietnamese. That's Vietnamese to me. And I think for me, Vietnamese means it's fluid, you know, it's like, it's not just ethnicity and race, but it's, I like the fluidity of being Vietnamese and Vietnamese American. I think it's the fluidity that I had to find for myself, that we're not a monolith. Um, we're not all poor boat people. Um, and we're not all wealthy bling blings. There's all kinds, there's a whole spectrum of us. And I think the more specific in stories we can get, the more people can understand that we're not a monolith, but we share some common values. And those values include being very thoughtful of others and harmonizing. Being Vietnamese, the one thing that I draw from being Vietnamese a lot is harmony. We really deep down inside love harmony. We, we have, there's so many proverbs and there's so many lower sea culture that mom passes on to their kids about harmony and about hua bing, in hua, the, the word hua is very prevalent in the Vietnamese language. And even in the worst case scenarios, we're still looking for harmony in yeah. humanity. Yeah. Min, thank you so much. We're going to have to revisit this um, again very soon. But um, again, it's my honor to to have you know this conversation with you. And thank you so much. 
I appreciate you so much, Ken. Um, I can't wait to explore more. And it's just been so wonderful being in your grace and your generosity. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. Okay. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.